0: Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. For the past uh, three Sundays, all of our readings from the narrative lectionary have come from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We began three weeks ago with the story of Noah and the flood. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. And then last week, we were in Genesis 39, where we heard a vignette from the life of Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. The final chapters of Genesis then share how Joseph's family and their descendants end up in Egypt during a a very great famine. And this sets the stage for the second book of the Bible, Exodus, which begins with this report. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and that whole generation But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we Come, let us deal shrewdly with them or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Exodus then proceeds to recount events that are actually about 400 years beyond the death of Joseph and his brother. So it's not a whole generation. It's many generations. And our reading for this week that we're going to focus on, it actually passes over many of the early dramatic elements of the Exodus story. So uh, we're passing over Moses' birth and adoption Into the court of Pharaoh. We pass over the story of Moses' divine call to liberate the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, and then the story of the 10 plagues that precede Pharaoh's decision to release the Hebrew people. In short, Our reading skips ahead to the point where the Hebrew people arrive at the edge of the Yam Suf. As we learned last Wednesday in the world's most honest Bible study, Yam Suf in Hebrew is Reed Sea, not Red Sea as we all learn growing up, right? And so this is Exodus 14, uh, verses 5 through 8, and then uh, jumping ahead to verse 10 through 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people, and they said, what have we done (laughs) letting Israel leave our service? So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 picked chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out boldly. As Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites looked back. And there were the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you? Let us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. For the Lord will fight for you and you have only to keep still. Now, just know that the Bible always translates things a little bit more nicely than maybe it should, and so that's more likely that Moses was saying, if you just shut up, the Lord will fight for you. (laughs) Since I mentioned the world's most honest Bible study, I will say that there are valid questions about many of the events that are described in Exodus, including the verses that follow what I just read, where the, where the, that tell us that the Israelites crossed through the sea and then the Egyptians uh, were overcome by the sea. One of my best friends uh, is a preeminent biblical scholar, and he spent 14 years writing a two volume commentary on Exodus. And he notes that even if we overlook the supernatural elements of the story, the exodus does not map well against the historical and archaeological record. As I reviewed what he has written about the historicity of the exodus from Egypt, it is clear that any literalistic reading of the story is exceedingly problematic. Rather, Exodus seems to both compress events that would have happened over a much longer time span, so not a whole generation, but 400 years, while also conflating historical elements and mythical features where it's hard to really distinguish which is which. And this is probably a good time to remind ourselves that as traditional Protestants, we do not read the Bible literally. I think we take it more seriously than that. And so if you have questions about this, one of the books that I always recommend is Making Sense of the Bible by the Reverend Adam Hamilton, who, li- who literally <laughs> describes how Christians have read Scripture for hundreds of years before anyone proposed that we should read it literally. Even so, I have to confess that I often end up wondering why the writers of the Bible do not tell their stories in a way which makes themselves look better. I think that's most often when I read the Gospels. I mean, why do the disciples so frequently come across as complete and utter dunces? You know, that's, I call them duh disciples. I, I mean, if these are the heroes that, that are going to spread the Christian faith, would it not be better if they were just a little bit more admirable? I think the same thing when I read the Exodus, the early chapters, where the Israelites, who've just been liberated from Egyptian slavery, they seem to be such a dreadful, ungrateful bunch. In the passage, as they're nearly overtaken by the Egyptian army, the Israelites say to Moses, did you bring us out in the desert to die because there were no graves in Egypt? Look what you've done. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. This is, of course, if we're being honest, a common congregational reaction to stressful situations. Whether we're staring down the Egyptian army or the pastor asks us to make a little extra offering for some particular cause, or we're invited to sing a hymn, we don't know. We tend to murmur rather quickly, don't we? Later in Exodus 15, after escaping Pharaoh's army and after three days of desert travel, the the people arrive at a pool of undrinkable water, and they are thirsty. The Israelites again grumble at Moses. They say, what are we supposed to drink now, smarty pants? Okay, so smarty pants is not in the original Hebrew. (laughs) But given their level of frustration, I think that's probably the tone that they had adopted. Once again, Moses successfully addresses the matter, but but then a couple months into the wilderness, sojourn, the Israelites are at it again. Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3 tell us, the whole congregation of Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only the Lord had let us die in Egypt. There, we sat by our pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Oh, those were the days. And to think, you brought us into the desert to let us all die of hunger. You know, never mind (laughs) that the Israelites were uh, impoverished and oppressed in Egypt, and now that they've got little to eat in the Sinai wilderness, they begin to think about the good old days back in Egypt. But how accurate do you think their memories really are? Do you think they were well off in Egypt as they are now remembering? In her song, Painting pictures of Egypt, uh, the contemporary recording artist Sarah Grove sings about our nostalgic tendencies. The lyrics of the song are very good, but I'll just share a couple. Uh, one of the lyrics says, the place I was wasn't perfect, but I had found a way to live. It wasn't milk or honey, but then neither is this. And then the chorus, I've been painting pictures of Egypt, leaving out what it lacked. The future seems so hard, and I want to go back. Those lyrics express what's going on for the Hebrew people now that they're in the wilderness. Painting pictures of a past in Egypt that never really existed. Egypt is where they were enslaved. Egypt is where their male infants were tossed into the Nile. Egypt is where they were subject to the whips of their taskmasters. Egypt is where they cried out for deliverance. But then, in all three instances, when they complained to Moses, they paint... Pictures of Egypt, where Egypt is really the next best thing to the Garden of Eden. Does that not ring true with our own experiences whenever we have to move forward towards an unknown future? Writing about the decline in church participation in the United States since the high point of the 1950s, Gil Rendell writes, "One of our greatest challenges is nostalgia. Our fine-tuned and rose-colored memory of how good things once were." And then he quote, "But nostalgia invites us to go backwards, not forward." He then quotes a broader insight about our culture from a book called The Fractured Republic. The lost golden age at the center of many of our nostalgic stories occurred in the decades that followed World War II. A great many of our current political, economic, cultural, and I'd add religious debates are driven by a desire to recover the strengths of that period, the good old days. As a result, our debates are focused less on how we can build new economic, cultural, and social capital than how we can recover the capital we already used up. I think that's worth thinking about. But I want to invite, I want to end this message by inviting us all into some contemplation as we prepare our hearts for communion. I want to ask, can we be honest enough to acknowledge that the glory days of the past are only as glorious as our fictionalized memories? Memories where we're probably editing out, like the Israelites, some of the harsher challenges and difficult realities of the past. In short, the question is, are we willing to paint honest pictures about where we've been and then trust God as we are led towards a more faithful future? I hope so. Because that's how we move forward into the promised land. Which Jesus called the kingdom of God. Amen. My friends, uh, this... First Sunday in October is World Communion Sunday. It is a Sunday where we join together with brothers and sisters all over the globe, Uh, you know, many communions, many different churches, uh, churches where some of our guest musicians serve, where are all sharing uh, communion today. And it is an image of what the kingdom of God ought to be, where the table is set for absolutely everyone. So let us remember that on the night that Jesus gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, O God, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup He gave thanks to you. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, drink from this all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in union with Christ's offering for us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on all of us who are gathered here. And on these gifts of the bread and cup, Make them be for us the body and life of Christ, that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his life-giving love. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty God, now and forever. Amen. Symbolic of our unity with people all over the globe, I invite you to just... Peel back the top layer and let us together, as one body, share from that loaf that Jesus broke. And now, together, let us partake of the cup. Would you join together with me in the prayer of St. Francis? Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy.